Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 222. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to continue WTF What the February with 1980s The Ghosts of Buxley Hall. Now, admittedly, this is not Monoreal Radio's first attempt at putting a show together focused on The Ghosts of Buxley Hall. Right. We were trying to remember... Uh, why we had watched this the first time. It was either going to be a Halloween episode or we were scrolling through uh, with our monoreal roulette numbers and past this one, but we were intrigued by the title. And I think we just might have ended up watching it for the sake of watching it. I think so. And then we just didn't feel like watching it again, so we never did the episode. But when you told me you wanted to do a What the February again, this was the first title that came to my mind. Uh, before we get too much further, I do want to apologize to the listeners because if you hear any background noise, uh, Walt is having a temper tantrum. Um, we normally hide any squeaky toys in our guest bedroom while we're recording, but my brother's coming in tonight and I've cleaned the room, so I didn't want to open the door and put the toys in there. Uh, so we put them in the closet in the studio, which contains all of our DVDs, and he sn literally sniffed them out and has plotzed himself in front of the door and is now crying. Yeah, so if he decides to interrupt us, we apologize, funny as it is. But is the ghosts of Buxley Hall all that funny or as entertaining as what we are experiencing here in the studio? Is it deserving of a title of WTF? And for what reason does it have the title of WTF? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. And they actually just designed a new sketchbook style Mjolnir shirt. And I'm absolutely obsessed. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. The historic Buxley Military Academy is broke following a decline in enrollment. So to make up the difference, the Wakefield School for Girls merges with all the boys at the school, because it is an all-boys school, to ease their financial woes, upsetting the ghosts who haunt the school. Founder General Ulysse C. Buxley, Bettina Buxley, his wife, and Sergeant Major Chester B. Sweet, who wish to see the school remain boys only, at least the general and the sergeant do. Colonel Joe Buxley, 
who is, I believe, the great-great-grandson of Ulysses C. Buxley and Emily Wakefield bicker as they fail to see eye-to-eye on the arrangement. Jeremy Ross arrives with his Aunt Ernestine and Uncle Sergio, unaware that he is the son of a wealthy family and carries a worth of $10 million. His legal guardian, George, who is also his uncle, does not want him to go with the other aunt and uncle, as all they care about is the money. So they leave the decision to Jeremy, who opts to enroll at Buxley. So George promises a sizable donation should Jeremy finish his education and keep him out of the hands of his aunt and uncle. Now possessing a wealthy benefactor, Buxley decides to stick to a strict military schedule to push the girls out and end the merger. The ghosts also decide in keeping Jeremy happy and save the Academy because they would like to remain in the building that they are haunting. Meanwhile, Ernestine and Sergio devise a plan to put an offer in to buy Buxley Hall on the condition that the girls are kicked out. Then they will withdraw the offer, see Buxley close, and regain the guardianship over Jeremy, who Ernestine will then have killed. I said that correctly. The cadets and the girls continue to prank each other and bicker as they have difficulties cohabitating Buxley Hall. Jeremy befriends a young girl named Posey, who is the most rebellious of the girls at Buxley. Jeremy attempts to run away, so Chester makes himself visible to him to talk him out of it. Meanwhile, caretaker Ben tells Ernestine and Sergio about the ghosts of Buxley Hall. As life becomes harder at Buxley, Chester helps Jeremy by guiding him through the rules at the school while teaching him how to box to defend himself. That night, Sergio and his henchman Vincent dress up as ghosts to scare the girls, but Ulysses and Chester fight them off to thwart their plan. That night, Bettina overhears Jeremy tell Posey that if she leaves Buxley, so will he. So she and Sweet try to tell Ulysses that the girls must stay but he will not listen. Ernestine and Sergio go to a judge telling him that Jeremy thinks he's seeing ghosts in the hopes that they will remove him from the school. Jeremy, meanwhile, fights off Hubert, a bully that has been giving him problems, but Posey tells him it won't matter as the girls are leaving Buxley as Miss Wakefield has had enough of the colonel, so Sweet makes himself visible to Posey as well. Jeremy offers to buy Buxley and calls his uncle for help, but Ernestine arrives and takes Jeremy to see the judge. Uh, the ghost, at least this is Sweet and Bettina, steal the bus from the girls' school. Ernestine is then confronted by the ghosts. The judge then grants guardianship to George. The ghosts then arrive back at the school to find out that a trust fund had been set up for the school since Jeremy was unable to buy it, but George sets up a trust fund. Ernestine then shows up to say that she has bought the school to tear it down, but the girls, the cadets, and the ghosts fight off Ernestine and Sergio and the crew of demolition employees that have shown up to destroy the school, therefore saving Buxley Hall. So there is, for a made-for-TV film that was on the wonderful world of Disney, when it was still airing on NBC, mind you, Uh, There is an awful lot going on, but most of what happens 
doesn't start to really catch on until well into the second half of the movie. Or your second or third viewing, in my opinion. Uh, Because I'll be honest, there were a lot more layers to this when I was watching with my notes and like really paying attention to it. Um, Because when we had watched it the first time, just for the sake of, um, admittedly, it was very hard to hold my interest and to focus in on this film. I always try just out of appreciation for the art form and respect to those who work so hard on the film to not be on my phone and to pay attention and engage with it as I'm watching a movie. But man, this was a struggle until we sat down and decided that we were doing this episode and I really needed to focus in on it. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the very start of the film. I understand that it's a made for TV film, but holy cheap. The <laughs> the opening credits, they just read like something that was thrown together. Because the other thing was, when we watched the first time, I did not know it was a made-for-TV film. I thought that this was just like a low-budget film that got buried in the Disney archive. So when you don't know going into it that it's a made-for-television film, it's very jarring to see that this is how the movie starts. Right, because the thumbnail does not make it look like a made-for-TV movie. Not at all. Not at all. And and it just, like, it's startling, right? Because you expect it's going to have, like, this big open to it and not at all. It feels every bit of, like, a low-rate 80s made-for-TV film. I also would have really liked if they had started on some sort of flashback to introduce the ghost characters as they were in life and maybe did a little bit of a period recreation so we have some sort of investment in them to begin with. Yeah, but what I do give the film credit for is that the setup is quick and the setup makes a lot of sense. The school's over 100 years old. People at this point, it's the 1980s, mind you. So it is supposed to be taking place in, at, in present time, at least at the time was present time, right? People really were not sending their kids to mili- military school come the 1980s. It would make sense that enrollment was down. You know, the fact that it's an all-boys school, even by the 80s standards, was sort of becoming out of date, right? There was more inclusion even in the 80s so that made sense and I thought that all of the little subplots that started to pop up very quickly made a lot of sense I would agree I think the premise of merging the schools to hopefully increase enrollment and therefore funds was a smart idea the only unrealistic part about it was that they would put the girls through all of this when it wasn't actually finalized Uh, because essentially the bus full of girls just shows up before any of the I's are dotted and T's are crossed with the bank loans and you don't even know if this school is definitely still going to make it Um, so I don't necessarily buy that the girls would be involved at this point. But at the same time, I don't mind that they're just showing up. What I sort of still bump on, though, is that you don't have any of the girls' parents involved. Like, it almost seems like their school closed down and they were homeless. And that's why Miss Wakefield just 
rolled up and said, okay, we're getting started. You don't really get any, because there's so much input on the guy's side from the parents, I think you need a little bit of that, uh, even if it's just the throwaway line, to find out, you know, that they're okay with this. Oh my goodness, Walt. (laughs) That was so distracting, I can barely even hear myself think. Mind you, listeners, that he's throwing this temper tantrum and he still has an entire box box full of toys. It's got to be 30 toys in that box. And never mind the fact that Sean just cooked him a fresh egg for breakfast whilst I was putting stew in a crock pot for his dinner. This dog eats better. I'm eating popcorn chicken from Publix tonight. The dog eats better than we do. No, this is becoming distracting to a point where I'm wondering if I just give him the squeaky toys because... A couple of squeaks is probably not as bad as this right now. Let's let's see how much further we can go. Not that I want to torture the poor guy, but um, I, torturing I, me. Well, uh, I want to I want to touch on something that you said about um, getting some input from the girls' parents and how the girls sort of just show up out of nowhere. Oh, good. I didn't remember what I said. Um, here's the thing. You're right. You don't. Well, you don't even really get input from the boys' parents. You really just get input from George. Who's just trying to get Jeremy into the school? If this was a film that had been released theatrically, I would have said yes. I completely agree with you, but because it's made for television, they're gonna rush through certain things. And I think the line of "Well, the girls' school was floundering, so we're merging." I I think that like that in and of itself was explanatory enough where you really didn't need to deep dive it. But you're right. It doesn't seem like it's it seems like the plan in theory is done without the actual merger having been finalized because they're still both sides, whether it be Wakefield or Buxley, they're both still trying to find their way out of it almost as soon as they introduce the idea. Right. Maybe it's not so much the parent, the girl's parents POV that we need, but maybe just a few more of the other students, both boys and girls, because the only characters that really get developed here are Jeremy and Posey. So with a cast this large, I think you needed to zero in on maybe one or two of their other friends. I mean, I know that's also part of the plot is that Jeremy and Posey form their own bond, but you could have given a couple of the other students some speaking lines to get that POV for, you know, well, if this doesn't work out, this really has to work um, because I can't go home. I don't have a good situation at home. Um, Or I don't want this to work. I'd rather go back to being a separate girls' school. So just a couple of other throwaway lines would have been helpful. But I imagine that goes back to budget, 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 because if they speak, you have to pay them more. And I think that they put a lot of their money into some of the visual effects, which we'll talk about later on. Um, Really? A little bit. We'll talk about it a little bit later on. Um, I like the subplot with the loan officers, actually. The fact that the one wants to foreclose and shut them down immediately, and the other one says, no, drag it out, let them fail, let's collect the interest on it. And then let's repossess it and then let's sell it because we can make more money. Like, I like that whether it's the loan officers or Ernestine and Sergio or George or Buckley or Wakefield or even the ghosts, everybody has their own 
sort of motivation for why they're trying to either make this work or completely fail it. Yeah, those were layers that I completely missed upon first viewing. But when you do look at it through that lens, it gets a lot better because it almost starts to feel like sort of a snatch and grab when you're focused more on the adults and their interests and everybody wanting a piece of the pie uh, as opposed to focusing on the kids. And that's also probably why they didn't bother to develop any more of the kids. Yeah. Let's talk about the introduction of the ghosts. Um, they're living in paintings. It's like Vigo the Carpathian. They're living in paintings on the wall. Unmatched paintings. The difference in the size drives me bonkers. Between Sweet's photo and the portrait of Eulis and Bettina you're talking about? Yes. I buy that Eulis and Bettina are going to have a bigger frame simply because there are two of them. but. It it just doesn't the way that they're they're shooting it in frame, meaning the frame of the camera. The sergeant looks so small, and their pic their their frame is like hanging off the wall or offset. I imagine, and that's why you don't even see the top of it most of the time. See, and I I didn't mind that at all. And if I'm being honest with you, I kind of thought that that was a great visual. I loved how those canvases would come to life and they would be living in the canvases and then they would come out. I think it was a good visual as far as you weren't shooting a separate video necessarily and then superimposing it. Like they didn't do like the Mary Poppins chalk painting. Right. With the, because they didn't have green screen technology at this point. Right. Uh, So it would have been, Probably the, uh, what do they call it? The sodium vapors? The sodium vapor, yeah. Uh, but I think instead what they did was they did a set build and they put the actors behind that wall. So that's probably why it was so big. Um, so I do like that. It's just that the design of the wall with the molding and the way the frame goes over the detail, it it's just visually busy and that's what I don't like about it and then the sergeant's picture it doesn't even look necessarily like it's the same era as Eunice and Bettina I mean like costuming wise yes but the portraits just look too different to believe that they were alive in the same time period well they were alive in the same time period but I think Eulis I think that the sergeant outlived Eulis considerably because he's so much younger I think that's partly why it looks like it took place during two separate eras. I got the feeling that the portrait of Sweet came much later than the portrait of Ulysses and Bettina. Well, not necessarily because I'm and this is where I mean there's so much information that's that's left on the table. I mean like are these ghosts the age they were when they passed. Um, you know, did Sergeant and Eulis die in battle? Is that why there was already an age gap? And I mean, I'll also buy that Eulis and Bettina have a different portrait because he's higher ranking and he's the founder of the school. So, you know, he's going to sort of spotlight himself. But we don't get any of that. The most we get is the Sergeant saying that Eulis promised... Made, this, made the sergeant promise 
while Ulysses was on his deathbed that they would withhold the traditions of Buxley. Okay, so I totally missed that then because we do get that information. Yes. That that Sarge outlived him. Okay. So with all of that being said, let's talk about them though. They are intentionally cringy just in their demeanor when it comes to people that aren't boys in the school, that aren't male in the school. Um, It's intentionally cringy as far as a period piece goes. And I know that people nowadays are going to sit there and watch that and they're going to get that, they're going to get the heebie-jeebies over it. And they're going to say, well, it's, it's sexist, it's this, it's this. And you're not wrong. But even by 1980 standards, they're doing that intentionally to make it cringy. Because I think that they tried to do some comic relief with it, which nowadays falls a little bit flat. But as far as a period piece goes, you're taking characters from the 1800s and dropping them into the modern day their way of thinking and their biases from the 1800s, it's its not going to magically go away because you drop them in modern day. It is, it's the literal fish out of water. For that much, I think it makes a lot of sense. I just think that perhaps nowadays the comedy falls a little bit flat. I agree. I think that a modern audience is going to feel that this is very heavy-handed. Um, but it is almost like a caricature of what they would have believed, meaning all of the sexist lines and commentary. Yeah. Um, that was all done intentional. I just don't find it very funny because you're right. It, it definitely falls flat. It's not jokey by today's standards because they don't make the ghosts, the butt of the joke enough. Exactly. And instead you have Euless telling Bettina a woman's place is behind the line stay out of this and you're right it it makes me cringe it's certainly horrible but then you get moments where the ghosts are overhearing uh these conversations that they're having about the school merger and they mention offhand that annapolis has women now and ulysses is losing his mind that's and funny point, yeah. and that holds i yeah, think i think so too what's incredibly distracting about these scenes for me though is that the ghosts don't have very quote-unquote ghost-like qualities. Like by this point, we've seen them walk through a door, but that's about it. Otherwise, they're jumping in and out of the paintings like Burt's truck drawings. Like they don't, you know, just morph out of the frame. It's more like a blip and then they're they're out. Um, you know, obviously, because we talked about the way that it was filmed before, they didn't want to do a lot of trick shots like that so it's just really clever editing and that's how they get them out of the paint of clever editing giving it a lot of credit actually but that's how they get out of the paintings and they're not lit any differently they're not um you know there's no like halo around them or anything they are just extra actors in the room and because of the way that it, this is shot, it feels very tight and very clunky because the camera is trying to allow us to see them, but the blocking just feels super clunky because you have the actors that are supposed to be present day walking around an actual person that they're not supposed to see. And because they're not ghostly or invisible, 
it just doesn't read well for camera. I thought that some of the visual effects weren't bad, though. I think because they used a lot of practical effects, and I think that's where a lot of their money went. Well, the other thing is a lot of the actors and even the director at the time, uh, Bruce Bilson, I believe, is who directed this. He directed Get Smart, which is funny that I had just mentioned Get Smart when we talked about um, the computer wore tennis shoes and how Arno's office reminded me of it, right? A lot of them were very successful Broadway actors, actresses, did Westerns. See, these were people that at the time had built quite a resume. Modern audiences wouldn't know them, perhaps, but you had a director that had built a big resume, had won Emmy Awards on a very successful sitcom, and you had actors and actresses that were established in their fields. So this by no means was a cheap film to put together. So the use of practical effects, again, and even stands true today, practical is more expensive than CGI and computer graphics. But I thought that some of the effects that they did, while minimal, were pretty good. And and to you were talking about with the with the editing, what was impressive to me, in a lot of scenes where the ghosts just appear in a room, where the actors... In pre- you know, our present-day actors where they're already established a presence. The editing is such so that they don't even cut away. They just cut into the ghosts standing there. So for all intents and purposes, the cast needs to freeze frame and work the actors in, and then they start rolling again. And a lot of the times, it's kind of seamless, which is more a credit to the cast for being able to hold a stance without moving for as long as they had to to get the ghost actors in place. And I was impressed by that. Right. You did just hit it, though, when you said play. I think that's what feels clunky to me because this is being shot as if you have a single camera on a stage they didn't use the film medium well where they could have punched in for a close-up and changed the camera angle, and then that's how you get your ghost in. And instead, it just feels like a lot of people crammed into a very tight space. Yes. Do you want to give the dog his toys back? Because now he's just like, he's so dramatic. I wish that we had the visual. He's lying on his side, just crying at the door. And let's see which one he takes. He takes the blue bone, and he ta- oh, and he took your spot over on the couch oh, here in the studio. Great. Okay. All right. So you're gonna have to get reset here. I am not cutting away. Oh, you've decided to sit on the floor. Yeah. I'm oh, just, and he gave you the he thank gave you. you the toy. Thank you. Okay. Walt. Okay. <laughs> this is a first. This is this is actually better. That way I can face you rather than try and squeeze in on the couch now. And he's going to, now that he has it, I guarantee you he's going to fall asleep in like five minutes. Yep. If only this was a YouTube channel. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Um, So. I have one more note. I I feel like we've spent a lot of time on the scene, so I know we do want to move on. But this is something that I'm, I I really bump on through the whole film. Um, You had posed this question to Ricardo when we reviewed Wakanda Forever. Uh if you've not listened to that episode, Ricardo's a friend of mine uh, who works in the television and film industry in the wardrobe department. And Sean had asked him if he finds it more difficult to uh, do costuming for period pieces 
uh, or more contemporary films. And usually, you know, and, and I would certainly tend to agree with this, it's more difficult to do period pieces because we know what things are supposed to look like. If you're building a world that nobody knows about and if it's a fantasy, it just has to look believable as opposed to we're looking back on something that's already happened and we can call it out more easily because we know how it was supposed to look. Right. So in this case, I think they did a good job with the costumes as far as, you know, just getting like the sergeant's outfit and hat correct, the colors correct. Uh, same with Eulis and Bettina. I think all of that looks great. Yeah. However, the materials that they used to make these costumes look too modern if that makes sense. This was my issue with the village. M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. I had figured out what was happening maybe a quarter of the way into that film. And it was it was exactly what's happening here. It's that the costumes looked the way that they were supposed to. It was just the materials that didn't look right. So I feel like they made these costumes specifically for this film and they didn't go and actually source older costumes or older materials to make them. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the costumes looked good, but I will agree with you there. They, they looked like more synthetic cotton and less like wool jackets. And at times, that almost reads like a Halloween costume. But they looked convincing enough, at least for a made-for-television movie they were convincing enough. But I think that's where they would have really benefit to do more ghost-like qualities. And that's where, you know, I know I'm being very critical, but like at this point, we do have the Haunted Mansion. We do have the Pepper's ghost effect. Right. So I'm really surprised that they didn't go for something like that. Yeah, same. All right, uh, let's move on here to our introduction of Jeremy and his aunts and uncles. Um. I find it interesting that the entire leg that Ernestine and Sergio have to stand on is that um, George could not possibly be, even though George legally is the legal guardian, even though there was a contract that made him the legal guardian, that no judge would let that stand because he's a bachelor. I've never heard a more ridiculous thing in my life. Yeah, not the strongest writing here. I mean, I, I get what they're trying to set up and they have to establish that. But it what was confusing to me, honestly, was that, again, first time watching this, loosely paying attention, I'm thinking these are Jeremy's parents because they're bickering like a married couple. Right. And I could see where George harbored such resentment because, you know, uh, really it's Jeremy's aunt. She's gotten remarried at this point and he's calling out this is her seventh husband. So when you miss that it's the aunt and uncles, it's reading like a divorce couple. That's the dynamic. Uh, so so this was just like a whole new setup for me, realizing that it is, in fact, his aunt and uncle, uh, and it's just a brother and sister bickering like this. But it makes sense that George ultimately has Jeremy's best interests in mind, and all he wants to do is protect Jeremy and the $10 million fortune that he carries because he knows that his sister, who married a count, 
an Italian count simply because she thought he had money. Um, Which it turns out they both lied about. Yeah. That is hilarious to me. Yeah, that they both lied to each other about their fortunes so that they could get married thinking the other one had the money. Uh, It was funny. It makes sense. Um, Again, this is where these agendas start getting fleshed out. And they bicker like a married couple, but it doesn't feel far-fetched that they bicker like a married couple either. No, but I feel like as his aunt and uncle, they could have... um, done it from from a more genuine place where they really did have his best interest at heart, which George does. Yeah. But this is where Ernestine's character is really going to unravel because, you know, we're going to peel back the onion and find out that, you know, it is her seventh husband. She lied to him. She's only after the money. Um, so she really is... I guess you could probably call her the villain because there are a lot of antagonists. And really, she is the one who comes up with the plot to kill Jeremy. So out of everyone and all of the opposing forces, she probably is the worst. Um, And it reminds me, their their whole motive for wanting the money, it sort of reminds me of um, Rooster in Annie. It's been so long since I've seen Annie. I don't even have a reference to what you're talking about. If I'm being honest with you. Uh they they're in with Miss Hannigan on um pretending to be Annie's real parents and coming back for her that way they could uh get Daddy Warbucks money for ransom. Got it. Okay. Yeah, then I guess they're basically the exact same thing, right? At least close enough. Just not as funny as as uh to, I'm thinking of the the Tim Curry and um Carol Burnett version. But that that's, I don't know, it's given the same energy to me. Um, but I would watch a whole, like, spinoff of The Count and Countess because I think they're hilarious. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on here. Um, we, need a, we meet another character. As some of the chaos starts to get fleshed out at uh, Buxley Hall, and we're starting to see more of the ghosts, we also get introduced to Ben, who's a caretaker. And... Ben, even by 80 standards, the era that lacks subtlety <laughs> is so badly overacted. I understand yeah. that this is a family film and he's supposed to be intentionally silly to make kids laugh. So I can appreciate that once or twice. But this is where it starts to set off how scared he is of the ghosts and his basically (laughs) and then just like flails his arms and runs into things. And the whole from this point forward, it happens for the entire film and it it does become a bit aggravating. Yeah, I see where it's supposed to become. It's supposed to be the comic relief, but it falls flat every single time. Not only by today's standards, I'm sure it fell flat in the 80s as well, just because it's such an over-the-top performance. And it happens like four or five times, and every time the reaction is the same. I, I get that you're not used to seeing ghosts, and that's fine, but like once you're aware that they're there, by the fourth time, you shouldn't be having this same reaction. What I was very surprised by is that there's this whole underlying alcoholism plot with his character because 
before he starts seeing ghosts, I mean, okay, you know, he's the caretaker at the school. He's around kids all the time. He clearly doesn't like him. He keeps sneaking off into the room where the portraits are, and he has a bottle of liquor hidden in one of the trophies. Yes. And he keeps going back to it several times. Like, anytime he has to have a conversation with the dean, he runs back in there. He takes a swig. So I was surprised to see that in a Disney film, especially one that was made for television. Um, but I thought that was more funny than what was supposed to be the comic relief of him, you know, reacting this way. And I'm glad that you bring this up now because that was actually my next note. Some of the humor that you start to see once you get through about the midway point of the movie. Um, I know that there are a lot of people now, especially more modern audiences that really do not appreciate a film such as Blazing Saddles because of a lot of the humor, a lot of the language, a lot of the innuendo. The thing with Blazing Saddles is, number one, it's an R-rated film. That is number two, written by Mel Brooks. That number three makes fun of everybody. Everybody makes fun of everybody in a movie like that. So some of the humor from that film makes sense for that film. It's jarring to see that kind of humor on the wonderful world of Disney when it's really one-sided humor. Yes. That was something that I think did date the film for as much as some of the commentary based on the fact that these are period characters for as much as that made sense this is where some of the humor becomes cringy yes um but i mean other than that something else that kind of stood out to me posey and jeremy i like their friendship but is it just me or does their age gap seem a bit too large for them to, they never get to like a an are they or aren't they kind of relationship. But I got the feeling that he was like 15 and she was like nine. Um, I don't think that there was that much of an age gap. And I also, I actually disagree. I think they're super cute. And I do think it reads as are they or aren't they. Because sometimes... You know, they're holding hands and the way that they go to bat for each other, um, I feel like that goes a little bit deeper than a friendship. I definitely think that there's some sort of crush there, but I don't think that the age gap is that large, nor would it be that inappropriate. Um, Because I think Jeremy is younger than 15. Um, I don't think his voice even dropped yet. I don't know. Maybe they just got a very tall actor who looks a lot older than he is. You know what, though? That's a tricky balance because part of Jeremy's arc is that he's up against the school bully, Hubert, who's just got it out for him. And eventually, you know, they get into a fist fight. So I think that you needed a taller boy to make that believable because clearly those are upperclassmen. Um, you know, because they're the ones that are always sounding the bugle and, and they have like the night watch or whatever it is. Um, I think that you have to balance those actors with Jeremy because otherwise you're going to have an older kid picking on a really, a much younger little boy. Um, 
and and that's just going to read as far too much bullying what's more inappropriate to me is that you know i'm totally fine with the co-ed schools but when you have older boys that are 15 16 and you look at some of these girls that came they that look like they're five to me that's far worse yeah and then you get introduced to this idea that they're all going to take a sex ed class together the older kids, this is not, they, they do shrink down to classroom size at this point. It's not the full cast in this room. It's not like they're in an auditorium or something and yeah. you have the five-year-olds in there. I'll be honest with you. I think this is one of the best scenes in the movie for a multitude of reasons. Because you have Colonel Buxley. He starts the class with just the boys. And he's kind of like yucking it up with them a little bit yeah there's there's like a wink and a nod like you boys know all about this yeah um and he's trying to level with them which for a military school it's almost a little too casual although there are scenes peppered in and out where you can tell that Buxley's softer than he appears certainly by military standards but then the girls come in and immediately he's no longer comfortable right and he doesn't know how to explain it anymore and Emily is just sitting there taking her own notes, having a laugh over it. It's the first time in the film that Colonel Buxley is actually out of control. Because up to this point, he's been able to kind of weave his way through the situation that he does not wish to be in with this merger. And he's kind of schemed and planned as to how he can get the Wakefield girls out. Mm -hmm. So he's never totally lost control until this moment because he doesn't know how to teach sex ed to young women. This was actually very smart writing, uh, just as far as a good use of setting and content, because we haven't really talked about... Um, Emily Wakefield and Colonel Buxley being opposing forces at this point. We've talked about the ghost. We've talked about the aunt and uncle's stake in everything. But really, while all of that is going on and everybody's making this about money, Miss Wakefield is genuinely invested in having this work out because she wants her girls to get a good education. She very much cares about them. Right. And that's, that's evident uh, from the second that we meet her. And this does feel a little tropey that Buxley, since this first meeting, has been putting her down and, you know, not as heavy handed as Euless is doing. He doesn't have uh, the same dialogue uh, where it's so overt, but instead he's doing more. Um, his actions are speaking louder than his words. Like he drafted up a new contract of um, oh, the code of conduct. For yes. how it's going to be with boys and girls. Didn't ask for her input. He just said, here, here it is. Uh, they're sharing an office, but he's not giving her as much space as he has. Um, so you're definitely, you know, it's evident that he doesn't want the girls there. And he's not making Emily's job any easier. But in this scene, it's where he gets a little bit of a comeuppance when he gets completely flustered trying to t teach girls sex education. Uh, so that was pretty well done. And I like Sweet in this scene as well because he's invisible because he's following Jeremy around. And when the colonel asks at the end of this horrific class that he <laughs> teaches if anybody has any questions, of course, all the girls raise their hand. And then very slowly it cuts to Sweet who's raising his hand. 
comedically, it was brilliant. Yes, it, his um his physical comedy is very good with his facial features. Yeah, um, and I like the relationship that he starts to develop with Jeremy, because this is where it really starts to take off. Where he's not just showing him, all right, this is the bench you're supposed to sit on. This is the bench you're not supposed to sit on. Salute this one. Stand in place. Stand in rank. Then he starts to teach him how to box to defend himself against the bullies. Oh, no, no, I love this. Because Jeremy kind of just gets kicked out of schools because, but he doesn't come off like a bad kid. He just comes off like he's misguided because he doesn't have that, you know, paternal figure. Because Ernestine won't let George have the, you know, the guardianship over him even though he's supposed to. Um, and, I mean, who's he going to rely... Sergio? Sergio's not going to be a very good stepfather to him. Right. So I like the fact that Chester takes that role. I'm totally fine with Chester stepping in as a father figure type. And this also, it does address something that I thought was an issue, but this kind of does cover it nicely. Um, I kind of thought at the beginning of the film, I was like, why now? Why have these ghosts never taken part in what's going on at their academy? Why is it only... I mean, obviously, when there's a threat posed, this is what's going to bring them out. But I just thought it was interesting that they have... They, they said with a couple of lines that they have just been... In those paintings, they don't come out ever. And now they are. Um... So I feel like this works well for Chester's character showing that he has been cooped up all these years and now he sort of, he, he sort of has, I don't want to say a new lease on life because he's not alive, but um, you can see where he would become so easily invested in, in a friendship because he hasn't had that in how many years they're, they're almost, you know, trapped in a limbo in those pictures. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll buy the relationship and the friendship that's forming here. I just think that if Jeremy actually takes his advice, he's going to get the crap kicked out of him because, you know, the way that Chester teaches him to box, it's one, two, three, a rump. And funny, you mentioned blazing saddles. Cause that's immediately where my mind went with a rump. But, um, you know, for kids watching, they don't do the cover your face. <laughs> they don't explain, you know, hit your opponent so they don't see it coming. And instead, you're counting it down. Like, it's amazing that Jeremy didn't get beat up. Well, if you're boxing, you are trying to protect your face and jab with the other. So he's literally teaching him the art of boxing. But to do the counts out loud, yeah, then it doesn't make sense. Yeah, But that doesn't mean that He's being taught the wrong thing. It's just that Jeremy doesn't know how to do it terribly well. Yeah. Um, with all of that said, let's move on to the Suicide Hill scene. Because what leads into this is you get the bickering on and off with Colonel Buxley, Joe, and Emily. And then it's, call me Joe, call me Emily. And it seems like they're mending the fence. And they almost start developing this are they or aren't they thing. It, and then, like, out of nowhere, it's like, okay, well, this isn't going to work. I'll see you tomorrow on Suicide Hill. Right. I mean, they 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 do start to build to that are they or aren't they 
with the, okay, let's drop the formality. Let's use our first names. And then they give Joe this save the cat moment where the bugle player comes in and he's like, ah, I don't feel good. And um, Joe sort of uses reverse psychology on him. And he's, oh, oh, it's the shot. He's like, oh, if you don't feel good, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you. And he pulls out this giant needle. And he's like, I'll give you a shot if you're not feeling great. So, you know, then the kid miraculously feels better because he doesn't want the needle. And then he gives him a little candy as he leaves the office. So, you know, they're totally trying to soften Joe for the audience because we need to start seeing the same things that Emily does and, and believe that she has a reason to start falling for this man. Right. Uh, so you have to make him likable, which is what they call save the cat. It's like a tropey thing in a script where the main character does something like saving a cat from a tree where you're, you're like, Oh, he's not such a bad guy. Right. But this moment feels totally out of character. Because up until this point, there are things that would never fly in military school, such as, you know, Posey and Jeremy get together one night because Jeremy needs to talk. So Posey goes to his room and then the upperclassmen pull this prank where they they put mice in boxes and they they do like a ring and run on the girls room. I don't buy for a second that in a military school the the boys especially upperclassmen would be pulling a prank like this because they know that there are very strong repercussions when you step out of line like that so I don't buy it at all and then you know after the bedlam of the mice is over you know there's a skirmish in the hallway with the boys and the girls and and uh Joe and Emily send them all back to their rooms Posey emerge instead of just like getting out in the scuffle so nobody notices her they emerge after the fact and they they catch her and I think this also does sort of answer the question with is there a little thing going on between Posey and Jeremy you know they certainly treat it as though there was because a girl is in a guy's room and Colonel Buxley is blaming Posey for this entirely and and he goes well she was in Jeremy's room and Emily's like what's the difference they were still you know co-eds in the same room unsupervised in the middle of the night so besides Colonel Buxley imposing a double standard and blaming Posey for that whole incident and and he almost does give Jeremy kind of the wink and a nod uh, and he's like we'll talk about this tomorrow son uh, he's always been the disciplinarian so I don't buy that he's gonna soften his stance just because one kid is feigning an illness. I mean, he says that the kid does it every night before they go to Suicide Hill, so this is a tradition at Buxley. And it just seems like everything's starting to work out, but now it's not because reasons. And we're just not going to work this out between Joe and Emily, and it's like seemingly out of nowhere. Well, I mean, in Emily's case, I would think that she'd be upset that she didn't know about this event at all. You know, this is one of their biggest events of the year and he's springing it on her the night before. Well, it also seems like the girls have been here for like three days. Right. You know, we, we also don't really have a frame of reference for how long they've been there. 
Yeah, I thought there was a little bit more motivation, though, with with Emily getting mad. I thought that there was a particular instance that she was mad at. I honestly don't remember what it was. No, I don't have anything noted. I, I thought, did she either overhear something or... It, it doesn't matter because we're in the middle of this men the fence scene that in, and immediately it just gets kamikaze Yeah. Like in a matter of seconds. And it's, I'll see you tomorrow morning on Suicide Hill. You know, dismissed. And so... Oh, I think because he says something sexist about it. I think because... That's oh, it. Because I think They're she, starting to get yeah. along and uh, he, he says something to the effect of um, if the boys win... It still reinforces the idea that he doesn't want the girls at his school. And that's what she's upset about is that she thought that him maybe having feelings toward her was going to soften his stance. Yeah. Well, it just seems like they rush to that moment. And then we get Suicide Hill and it seems like they're mending the fence again, even on Suicide Hill, because like they're all cheering for each other and... He clears the hurdle with the mud, and Emily does not, and she falls into the mud, and he's cracking jokes with her, and I think he lends her a hand to get her out of the mud, and she pulls him in, and they're having a laugh over it, and all the kids are having a laugh, and it's like, oh, okay, we've mended the fence again, except uh, the girls are leaving. Now it's just, oh, uh, by the way, and uh, the girls are leaving now. There's no reason why the girls are leaving other than Emily can't get along with Joe, except the problem is more times than not, they're getting along and they're kind of flirting and they're kind of like playfully joking with each other. And then like they get out of this mud pit after this little prank and it's, well, this is never going to work and we're out of here. It just seemed like they rushed to that conclusion so that we could get to the end of the film. It's conflict for conflict's sake, Um, but you don't really have the support from the character motivation at this point. Um, What I think would have been a little bit more effective is that you've had Chester taking a stake in helping through Jeremy. Um, I wish that Bettina had been helping Emily this entire time and, you know, using her knowledge of what Eulis is saying and any other information that she's overhearing to help Emily out. It almost feels like an entire scene was cut or that you could have added something in where Bettina helps Emily prep the girls for Suicide Hill so that they can stake their claim and have everything work out the way that they want it to. And I also think that that would have served to the girl power theme of this movie and proving that, you know, girls are are equal. Like, that. that's Emily's whole thing is she keeps arguing... And that's what it is. It's one of the lines is that um, they were supposed to keep the school separate but equal, which I think is very poor writing. But um, that's what Emily keeps calling Joe out on is that he keeps reinforcing that idea that they're not equal and they're going to keep them separate. uh, But the girls are never going to be the same as the boys in this school. And that's what keeps triggering her. Um, so I think that if you did have that sort of friendship form with Bettina, it would have been an equal match for, for Joe putting her down. Um, yeah. 
it, it could have been. Let's get towards the end of the film here, okay? Uh, and something, actually, I want to comment on something you just said about a wasted opportunity with Bettina. The real shame of that is you've had some really great scenes with Bettina because, remember, the ghosts are invisible. When she goes into onto the girls' floor and she sees, and you see, like, how excited and how happy she is to see how far along women have come up to that point because the girls are listening to music, they're braiding each other's hair, they're wearing the kind of clothes that they want, they're laughing, they're having fun. She's playing with the hairdryer, another really good practical effect that yeah. sends Ben into, ah, you know, mode, and out the door he goes. It's like like such an understated great moment that I wish they would have built upon that a little bit more, and I do think that that was a missed opportunity. Right. Um, some of it, though, even that is heavy-handed. Like, I think... I think Posey is wearing a shirt that set, that literally says never underestimate a powerful woman or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's kind of the theme of the whole movie. Did we need to put it on a shirt? And it's not, I don't care that there's a female empowerment there, but did it seem a little odd that they just slapped it on a shirt? Yeah. And you're, you're calling it out in, in, instead of, you know, letting that speak through, through the story through screenwriting you needed a sign yeah yeah you literally it was like the sarcasm sign i mean this was pre-spice girls we didn't have girl power as the phrase yet um but even that on a shirt would have been too much in this film but with all of that being said let's get towards the end of the film here let's get to the point where now Chester and Bettina are working together. Ulysses still doesn't want to hear that the girls have to stay, even though Chester and Bettina know why the girls have to stay. Because if the girls leave, the school will fold. But they don't even try to explain that to Ulysses. They try. He's just too stubborn to listen. So instead, they go about commandeering this bus and scaring the daylights out of Ben and stealing the Wakefield bus and heading to Ernestine and Sergio's home. This is extra. This bus driving sequence. I didn't mind it. You, the thing I disliked most about it is that Ben is there. I know that somebody had to show them how to operate the bus, but them playing with the knobs and all that, and Ben seeing that the radio turns on by itself, the doors opening and closing, the windshield wipers are going. I was fine with that. It's just by this point, I'm so sick and tired of him as a character that I don't ever want to see him again. <laughs> But I didn't I didn't hate it. What was it about it that didn't sit well for you? Um timing. I I think they you know invested so much and we got this bus to look like it's driving itself like they used every single bit of it instead of, you know, pacing it out a little. Mm-hmm. Um but I can also see where, you know, again, made for TV movie, that's a big effect to pull off and for the time that was a pretty unique thing to do. Um, but that's the thing. I guess, like, they're ghosts. They couldn't have just arrived at Ernestine's house, you know? Well, that's it. It's the wonderful world of Disney. They're trying to be silly because it's supposed to be a family film. Right. Um, but How do I... they know where Ernestine lives, though? I don't know. But what I did like was that they didn't, like, waste a lot of time at Ernestine's house. No, it's it's a uh, quick scene. In out, get get her pied, and then that's it. Bettina pies her in the face, 
They get Jeremy out of there. They get them back to the school where Joe is sympathetic again. And now he wants to fix things with Emily. And he doesn't want the girls to leave. Five minutes prior, he couldn't wait to get them out of here. Right. Now he wants them to stay again. It just, it seems unmotivated. Like, where did it come from? He needs that moment of realizing that he really has feelings for her and that if the girls leave, she leaves too. Right. And there's not. And then I feel like they rush into this idea that Ernestine has bought the school. School's not in foreclosure. They extended the loan. Again, you have no frame of reference for how long these people have been there. This seems like you extended the loan. And I think they even said that they were extending it for a few months. No, she she had pull with the judge to try and get custody. And he was going to sign off on the paperwork. And I think uh, she was... She goes to talk to the vice president of the bank. Because the judge won't grant her the... She won't make her the legal guardian of Jeremy because she starts saying that she was seeing and speaking with ghosts. And right. And tears up her petition. Right, but so, that's at the very end. Before that, she goes to talk to the VP of the bank who, in his own self-interest, wants to... Because you can kind of tell that he's like standing in the president's shadow. So he wanted to make this move for his own gain, even though we don't really have a ton of motivation for that. We just know that he he doesn't like taking orders. Uh, and I think that's how that's how she pulls it off is because he did it uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, and then they get on site and then he closed the deal but didn't close the deal, wants to close the deal but doesn't want to close the deal. This guy Quimby, mm-hmm. who's like completely conflicted. And awfully fast to bring in a wrecking crew. Here comes a crane yeah. and a bunch of guys that are going to demo the school like immediately. Like the ink's not even dried on the contract that could not have been signed because they would have had to sign the school over to her. But because the school's not in foreclosure, they couldn't have done it because they had just gotten an extension on the mortgage. And it felt like that only happened five or six days ago. This is where the timeline is just so skewed that... And I understand, again, it's made for television film, so you're going to expedite the process a little bit, but even this seems a bit rushed. It does, but what I do appreciate is that Ernestine and the Count just didn't get spooked and run off into the night never to be heard from again. I like that they had a full circle moment by this only motivated her to get what she wants even more. Yeah. And then... The cadets and the girls and everybody else, they fight off. And even with the help of the ghosts, they fight off the demo crew. They fight off the count and countess. And this trust fund is set up through George to keep Buxley going. So they get to keep their school and the ghosts say, we're going back in the paintings. We're not coming out again because we don't need to save the building. School's already been saved. Well, no, the ghosts actually, they do have like their, it's sort of like a Mary Poppins moment where they stay until the wind changes, but this is where it works that they haven't come out all these years, but Sarge took a liking to Jeremy. He also likes just being out in the world again. So he asks Euless for a post to keep an eye on things and, and he, Euless grants it. It makes sense. The end of the movie cliched as it is, it was fine. Yeah. I had for, no for what the movie is, it was fine. Yeah. I mean, it is supposed to be a fun, lighthearted film meant for families at the end of the day. 
are you ready to move on to the cast here, or do you have any other notes on the plot? No, let's talk about these characters. Okay, Dick O'Neill plays Ulysses C. Buxley. I thought, despite how you may feel about some of his dialogue, I think he absolutely nails the interpretation of this post-Civil War era general. Yeah, if you don't take this character seriously and you look at him as a caricature, he's great. And it will definitely ease the cringe on some of his lines. But I don't think they're meant to be taken seriously. No, that's what I'm saying. It It is a caricature of what this, you know, war hero or whatever you want to call him would have been at the time. Yeah. Uh, Victor French plays Sergeant Major Chester B. Sweet. The more I watch the film, the more I really, really like this character. Agree. And the the actor is great. There's a lot of physical co- comedy in his role, and he handles it really well, especially that moment at the end where he does reveal himself. And that's actually a cool little edit where he pops up in all these different places and he's making all these different faces. It that That's fun. Yeah. Louise Latham plays Bettina Buxley. I wish they would have done a little bit more with her because I love seeing a modern world through her lens. Me too. Um, I disagree about doing more with her, though. I wish she had more screen time. But to me, Bettina has the most full arc out of anyone in this film because... How many times is her husband, you know, a woman's place is behind the line. You're a woman. You wouldn't understand these things. She doesn't listen. She pops out of the portrait at, of her own will. Um, she gets involved in everything that's going on. She's exploring this new technology. She's, you know, appreciating the time with the girls. Um She's rooting for a cause. And at the end, she gets her moment because her husband finally decides to let her fight and she gets to shoot the cannon off. She literally has the biggest arc of anyone in this film. And she is by far my favorite character. I love her. Yeah, And she has the final line in the movie. Yes. Which puts the general in his place. Rad Daly plays Jeremy Ross. I said it before. He he seems like a misguided kid, but not a bad kid. And I... I like him as a character. I thought he was endearing. I thought that he had that boyish charm that you really like in Mm -hmm. in a character like this. I just feel that there was a disconnect between him being a bad kid and being a kid that just doesn't have a clear path. Like, you look at him and you hear him speak and you see how he looks out on those around him, and he just doesn't seem like the type of kid that would have been thrown out of a half a dozen schools up to this point in his life. Yeah, I think they needed to give the character a little bit more of that bad boy edge. Um, but as far as the actor goes, I I thought he was great, except for the boxing scene where he doesn't cover his face. But he reminds me, actually, of like a Bobby Driscoll. Uh, and I'm surprised that he didn't do more with Disney and we didn't see him, you know, return quite a few times that he didn't get like that studio contract. Yeah. Trisha Cast plays Posey. She's spunky. She's rebellious. She's a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like Posey. She's like a little punky Brewster. Yeah. Ruta Lee plays Ernestine. She's good comic relief. She never gives up in, you know, her own mission to get all of this money and take down the school. Uh, 
I like her. I just, I do. I think that her and the Count together are really good. I do too. Um, I I love all of their scenes. I think those are some of the funniest comedic moments in the movie. Um, she reminds me of um, in It Takes Two, the woman that Steve Gutenberg is going to marry before Christie Alley. Yeah. Clarice? I Something like, I haven't seen It Takes Two. I haven't seen it in what's got to be 20 years at least. Probably more. I'm 36. 25 years? That was like a staple in our household. Yeah. I, I used think, to watch it a lot. I think the character's name was Clarice. I, I forget the actress. Well, Chopping. <laughs> she, she and the Count remind me of Boris and Natasha from Rocky yeah, and Bullwinkle. Yeah. Um, and Vito Scotti plays Sergio. He's really funny and I love his look and his demeanor, but he reminds me in a way like of the really like sloppy hand uh sloppy screenwriting that we saw in Luca where it was just say Italian things and he'd be like mozzarella like he would just like get like or mamma mia it was like uh, yeah. so cliched Italian Italian say Italian things no and there was one thing I forgot I what he point, said it was just like portabella like it was just like <laughs> made no sense no or it was supposed to sound Italian but he just put the accent on but it was it, it was an English word and I, I can't remember what it was now but I was like oh there, there was a little cringe with the stereotyping but at the same time again it, it's a caricature so it still were with Ernestine. Everything balanced itself out there. Correct. Uh, Monty Markham plays Colonel Joe Buxley. I want to like him. It's not that I dislike the character. It's just I don't like how he's written because he feels like he's playing two different characters at the exact same time. And to me, he's milk toast. It's all dialogue. He he gives like nothing to this performance. Renee Jarrett plays Emily Wakefield. I like her. I don't have any issues with her. Um, I think she's standing up for her cause. And, and what I like about her is it's she obviously cares very much about the girls, but she also cares about coexisting with the boys. Like, she yeah. wants this to work. She's not solely for her own self-interests. And I thought that she was fine. I mean... A little one-dimensional, obviously not the star of the show, but I don't think she's meant to be, um, but she's another one that jumps to conclusion for the sake of drama. I agree. I feel like, again, had she had that, had she forged a friendship with Bettina, it would have brought out more of her character, but I do like that she wasn't acting out of personal gain as far as saving her job wanting to keep the schools together. It was more for the cause than any of her own self-interest. Final thoughts on the ghosts of Buxley Hall. I'll go first because I'm going to keep this pretty short. I definitely liked it better upon rewatch, which is probably my own fault because I was paying a lot more attention. So this film is a lot more layered than I initially gave it credit for. Um, it's a pretty fun watch. I think it's definitely worth checking out. I just wish there were more ghosty effects and that it was a little bit scarier. I mean, I realized this was made for TV. I realized that they were really going for comedy here, but I think that you could have 
spooked it up a little bit more. And instead of Ben having these over the top reactions, it would have been more fun to see more practical jokes from the ghosts and, and maybe scare a kid or two. So it took three viewings, but I don't dislike it. And I think sometimes that's what I appreciate about doing monoreal is there. I mean, how many times have you heard on the show? We have said, I watched it the first time. I completely hated it. I wasn't looking forward to watching it the second time. Mars Needs Moms, perfect example, right? Don't look under the bed, at least for me. Another perfect example. I loved Mars Needs Moms. Not the first time. The first time we watched it and said, that might be the worst film we've ever seen from Monoreal Radio. And it wasn't until we watched it the second time that we went, oh wait, there's an awful lot going on here. Um, That's kind of where I went with this I said it before and I'll say it again the Blazing Saddles esque humor feels out of place for a wonderful world of Disney film and I don't think was the appropriate place for that kind of humor but with all of that being said I think where it feels dated it's done so tongue in cheek and I think that for a movie that is over 40 years old at this point for them to have been calling out those prejudices at the time, I think shows just how long we've been kind of in this holding pattern with some of those prejudices, right? Um, But I think that it was a risk worth taking for Disney to do it then because people jump on Disney for doing it now. Um, I think to do it then, because there was no social media, people were less vocal about it. It didn't spread like wildfire, the criticisms or even their opinions of it. Um, the poor reviews that I've seen on this film are modern reviews from people that I don't think recognize that the cringiness is done intentionally to make some of these characters look foolish, to make them look selfish, to make them look out of touch with reality. If you understand that going in, it's a much better film. To the point that you made, there are a lot more layers than I thought the first time we watched it, and I'm glad that we held on this. Yeah. I'm glad that we held on it. I'm glad that we gave it a second chance. I'm glad that it took three viewings. Does it deserve to be in what the February... I think it does, but I don't think it's the most egregious what the February that we've seen. It's not Gus, right? It's not Fuzzbucket. Yeah, I don't I don't think this deserves my off top we're doing what the February. Okay, this is it. Buxley Hall is in. Um but yeah, for its clunkiness it belongs here, but better story than we initially gave it credit for. We want to know what you have to say about the ghosts of Buxley Hall. Have you seen it? Are you now interested in seeing it? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. And if you have any other recommendations for our last week of What the February, send them in. Yes, because we are open-ended. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey everyone, this is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, 
you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney, and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. As always, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see all of Kelly's products services, designs. It is online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. We have a little bit of news this week. We went further in depth with some of the more recent Disney news on a dockside chat that we just released the other day. So after you're done listening to this, if you want to go and listen to some of our in-depth conversation about the more uh, modern Disney news, uh, the more noteworthy, perhaps, Disney news that required a long-winded conversation over margaritas. Or if you want to hear about Festival of the Arts or the House of Mouse Expo or any of the things that we've done as Disney Parks locals, you can go listen to Dockside Chat number 11. But let's talk about cancellations. Two cancellations coming from Disney+. Plus. One, I don't mind at all. The other one, I am slightly disappointed to hear. Uh, one I'm pretty bummed about and the other I'm heartbroken about. Mighty Ducks, Game Changers, and Big Shot. On the chopping block. Both canceled after two seasons at Disney+. Plus. Now, admittedly, we have not watched season two of Big Shot yet for no reason more than, like, wrapping up National Treasure. This is the thing, right, with Disney+. Plus. I, I like that they do things episodically. Because every week you get a new episode and a new episode. But when they throw so much at you, and it's, you know, other streaming services aren't doing the episodic releases. They just dump everything in. Mm -hmm. Your time, especially now that we're not sitting at home all of the time with nothing to do, your time is being spent elsewhere. So I feel like you need to give some things breathing room. Mighty Ducks Game Changers... We have very different opinions. Mm -hmm. uh, I liked season two more than season one, but I think that you have squeezed blood from a stone 
and I really think that that's a dead franchise at this point. But I feel like they just released Big Shot. And to cancel it so quickly, and I thought personally that that was a much better show all around than Game Changers. And the fact that you have Yvette Nicole Brown and John Stamos, who are both so big in the Disney community, that they're both in that television show, that you would cancel it kind of abruptly took me by surprise. I'm fine with Game Changers being gone because, frankly, I don't think that there was much of a story there. I'm disappointed. Now, I may watch season two of Big Shot and be like, oh my god, this was horrible. We'll eventually let you know. But based on how good the first season was, I'm surprised that they would so abruptly dis- uh, cancel it, and, and that disappoints me. Um, I mean... It's a numbers game, though, and that's that's really not just a Disney problem. It is a problem across all of these streaming services. It's a huge industry problem now because, to your point, this market is oversaturated. We simply cannot keep up with all of the content that is being released these days, especially for you and I who are watching two movies a week for the show or the same movie twice. That's, that's four hours out of the gate. Plus another, that's like four episodes of television right there. Plus another two hours on average that we're sitting here between recording and editing and uploading. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's six one hour episodes or that's an entire season of a 30 minute show. But I mean, that's, that's just us. You know, for people that are working, if they have kids that are in sports or dance class or whatever, after school activities are back, people are just simply not watching television. And it is not fair to hold these shows and the numbers of viewers accountable the same way that they were during the pandemic when everyone was plotzed in front of their TV for hours a day. Um, And it's something, like I said, that it's not just Disney. All of these streaming services have to realize. The other thing is that going into the pandemic, Disney was and Hulu and Netflix were like the big three. Since then, you've got Prime merging with MGM. uh, You've got the Discovery merger. So now and uh, HBO Max and Peacock and, Peacock and Apple. And Peacock also has a partnership with WWE now. So there's all these mergers. Everybody wanted to go up and compete with Disney. And well, congratulations, now you've done it. And there's just too much. And we're not going to be spending, you know, we don't have the stimulus checks anymore. So we're not spending those on eight different streaming services. We're picking and choosing what we want to watch. And that's where these... Networks are all getting very, very competitive with what they're doing with original content. I think they are remiss for canceling shows where it's original content. Because now, I mean, Disney is always going to survive that because of Marvel and Star Wars. But you need to give these little middle-of-the-road shows a chance to breathe and people a chance to catch up and watch them. And you're right, they're canceling them far too quickly. I thought Big Shot was a great show. It's well-written. The characters are so diverse and so deep and well-rounded. I thought it was a really, really excellent show. So I'm very much bummed about it. Uh, And I am heartbroken about game changers because every time 
I thought it was getting stale. And to your point, squeezing all the blood out of the stone, they figured out a way to make it stand on its own legs without the source material. Do I think it would have been better if Emilio Estevez was still involved the second season? Yes, absolutely. And I think that there would have been a bit more opportunity for more fun cameos that would have kept people watching. Um, but what I'm, what I'm most upset about is that he's never going to have the chance to come back. And I'm upset for Lauren Graham because she was not only the, one of the stars, she was an executive producer. So to see that taken away from her, I'm, I'm really upset. My fear is that Disney is just going to hang their hat on franchises yes, at this point. That's what I'm saying. The middle of the road show. I, I said middle of the road, but yes, that is, that's exactly it. Is it's, that the franchises are going to carry them. It's going to turn into, okay, so we're going to write television shows for Disney+. Plus. It has to be Star Wars. It has to be Marvel. And uh, let's take Moana and Frozen and let's just beat them to death until the next phenomenon comes out and then we'll beat that to death too and you're not going to get a show like a behind the attractions like the imagineering story like a big shot even though i didn't love game changers something like a game changer like i i do believe that there was nothing more that you could do with that story but so so i'm not so upset that that's gone because i don't think the mighty ducks franchise at this point is a feasible option for Disney. But Unless fear... you bring it back with Charlie coaching a team. It's done. It's over. Mighty Ducks is over with. But I fear what this means for Disney content long term because we will always have Disney Plus because of Monorail Radio. But I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like if we didn't have Monorail Radio, I may, just may, have gotten to a point where it's like, I don't need to pay a monthly fee to watch Star Wars and MCU content. I'll just wait until I know that that's a lead-in for a theatrical run. I'll spend my six bucks for the month. I would marathon that to be caught up for what I'm going to see in a movie theater. And I think that this is why a lot of Disney Plus subscribers are dropping. So the Disney library, your classic films, your animated films, we have a literally an entire closet. Not a joke, an entire closet in our house dedicated to DVDs. Half of that is Disney. The one that Walt was crying at. I'll post a picture of it. Literally half of this closet is Disney films. Technically speaking, we don't really need Disney Plus to stay entertained. We need it for the show. We ditched Netflix. We only recently brought it back because there were shows that we wanted to catch up on. Once we're caught up with Netflix, we'll probably ditch it again and save the, you know, 14 bucks a month. A lot of people do this. They ebb and flow with their streaming services. And if you are just going to use Disney Plus as a platform to push content that you need to watch to understand what you're seeing in a movie theater. I think that without original content, without a diverse library of original content, it can't just be Moana, Frozen, Star Wars, MCU. You need a Game Changers or something similar. You need a Big Shot or something similar. You need a Behind the Attraction, right? 
and I, I, you know, the Muppets. We we do Muppets now, oh, but we're not going to do it anymore because Disney does not really know what to do with the Muppets. Frankly, they they go all in with the Muppets for a month, and then it goes away for a few years. Like there are just there has to be something else here that you can deliver other content. Otherwise, it's going to get stale. People don't need Disney Plus to watch Frozen when you have the DVD already. Right. No, and this is this is what I'm saying. It is an industry-wide problem because what these companies realize is that it's like how strong is your back catalog? Because that's what people are going to tune in for regardless is because they want access to the films that they grew up on or their favorite movies or, or whatever, what have you. Um, and that's why all of this original content now, there's so much emphasis on it because that's where your, your new competition comes from. But I think what everybody is forgetting is demographics because all they're seeing is numbers. All these streaming services want the Mandalorian numbers. They want the Stranger Things numbers. They want the Wednesday numbers. But what they are not realizing is that, you know, it's mostly people our age and older watching those shows. You need something for the kids to watch that's not bluey. You need like a middle-of-the-road thing, and and Big Shot and Game Changers were perfect for that. You need that tween audience. Yes, right. and they're they're going to lose that. And, yeah. and I don't think anybody sees that coming. Well, we want to know what you have to say about the cancellations of Mighty Ducks, Game Changers, and Big Shot. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on that social media. We are on TikTok as well at Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.